Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, my guest is Maryam Jahanshahi. She is a research scientist at TapRecruit, a startup that uses machine learning and analytics to help companies recruit more effectively. In an upcoming survey, we found that a skills gap or lack of skilled people remains one of the main bottlenecks holding back AI and machine learning adoption within companies. So many companies are actually exploring a variety of internal and external programs to train their staff. But of course, the other thing that companies can do is to hire new talent. So if you are interested in growing your teams, your technical teams, particularly your data teams, you will definitely enjoy this episode. And one thing to note, Miriam is part of a great slate of talks around the use of AI and machine learning. Uh, for text and text mining and uh, natural language processing. And one of the actually uh, great talks at our AI conference in New York is a talk on BERT, which is Google's new open source project that has set state-of-the-art records in a variety of NLP tasks. So this is all part of our upcoming AI conference in New York. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Maryam Jahanshahi, welcome to The Data Show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a PhD in cancer biology. What on earth made you decide to go into industry and become a data scientist? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, when I was doing my PhD, it was sort of in the era, and, and, and I'm making myself sound super old right now, but um, in the era when all of these sequencing projects of um, cancer genomes were coming on and becoming very publicly available. And actually, my PhD had nothing to do with any of that, really. I was doing what we call a wet lab PhD. So I was running experiments all the time. I was on the front line of those sorts of things. So doing a lot of dissecting and imaging, fruit fly tissues and doing protein biochemistry and things like that. But towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I really had to develop some you know, quantitative skills really to be able to harness the power of all of these extraordinary uh, data sources that have coming become really available. Um, and so towards the end, I sort of developed, I did something that I think most data scientists would probably frown on a little bit, but I think it's actually very important, um, was to really develop Excel chops. So that is, and that's what I sort of tell a lot of young data analysts who sort of ask me about what they should really focus on. I think programming is wonderful. Um, but being able to do VLOOKUPs, HLOOKUPs, and all the rest of the sort of complex Excel skills and then being able to translate that into other systems is very helpful. So I sort of developed those skills towards the end. And, and actually, that was one of the chapters of my thesis was, you know, taking what we had learned in these wonderful systems and converting them into how do we see this play out in human tumors? And so at the end of my PhD, I decided to take some time off and teach myself how to code. And I tried to do that during my PhD multiple times. And that was very difficult when you have experiments running. And so I took some time off and, and actually uh, did a course, a bunch of actually Coursera courses in Python primarily. And 
by the time I had gotten some data science chops, I would say, or quantitative skills, I had two lucky sort of instances that happened to me, one of which was, and this sounds very meta, I was starting to look for jobs and I was reflecting on what of a job description turns me on and turns me off and what things really deterred me from applying to companies and how I could parse the culture of a company a little bit through the job descriptions. And the second lucky thing is that I had a couple of friends, and this is probably the only lucky thing, it's really not two lucky things, who had been running a job search site for two years, I think, at that point. And they were pivoting to become a, a B2B offering, and, and their goal was to help companies improve their recruiting processes. And so I sort of was like, I want to test my data science skills with you guys. And I have these theories about what I think impacts candidates in different ways the language and the structure and the content of job descriptions. And so let's run some experiments. And, you know, I did my PhD for seven years and I'd been doing experimental science for 10 years at that point. And you always want this, you know, you hear of these stories of people who have these amazing experiences of this the one key result that sort of threw their world upside down that they didn't believe. And we actually had that with, we kept having that. And it was actually kind of like a contact high at that point. And then I sort of decided, okay, you guys have got to let me on. We've got to really develop, you know, my role ended up being a bit of the both was on the one hand doing a lot of experiments and on the other hand, doing the data science that informs those experiments. So that's sort of how it came. It was a little bit by chance and a little bit by design. Wow. So uh, actually your story is unusual in this regard because now there are fellowship programs for people with PhDs in the sciences and engineering and help them transition over to become industrial data scientists or industrial data engineers. Usually they run anywhere from six to 12 weeks. And most PhDs who want to make that transition usually go through one of those fellowship programs. So number one. Number two, before we go on and talk about what you're doing now, uh, do you miss cancer biology? I do still interact with it in some ways, unfortunately, for friends and family members. But I don't miss the physical act of doing experiments because I'm still doing a lot of that. I mean, I think my role is kind of unusual. I don't actually even call myself a data scientist. I call myself a research scientist because I still run a lot of behavioral experiments. And that sort of feeds that side of my brain in some ways. But there is a body of work that I developed in that area that I still read from time to time. But there are other things that really interest me. And I, as much as I love um, the area of cancer biology, it is somewhat saturated in the area that I'm focusing on now. I have millions of ideas of experiments and things like that that I want to run and, and analyses that I want to do. And so it's been wonderful from a, having a child that is open to a lot of different questions, which I felt was a bit difficult in the context of cancer biology because you know, we've been studying it for so long and, and there are still obviously areas that need to be taken up in various ways, but it's a little harder to do with um, it, with the way that funding is currently in that area. Also, before we leave this topic and talk about what you're doing now, I this gives me a perfect opportunity to plug uh, an upcoming keynote at a conference that uh, actually Miriam is giving a talk in our AI conference in New York by Olga Troyanskaya of Princeton and the Simon Center for Data Analysis in New York. So she's actually using deep learning for her work in genomics. So That's fascinating. That area is so cool and has got so many interesting, I think, um, potentials. So I've definitely seen talks at both the Strata and the AI conference recently, which blew my mind in different fields. 
broadly in the field of medicine um, and the way that that's being used. So I think that you kind of described very briefly what uh, TapRecruit does, but in slightly more detail. So what does uh, TapRecruit, your company, do? So we are a software company and we use data to improve both the efficiency and the fairness of how companies recruit. And so the way that this is actually manifest is our first product is basically an editor for job descriptions. And it takes these data-driven suggestions and converts them into such, you know, insights and into ways that you could change, you know, different things, different parts of your job description to make it more effective. We also sort of have a salary estimation tool. And what that does is it takes skills and qualifications and extracts what it thinks the value of those are in different geographies. And basically what's at the heart of this is, you know, I tend to think of us as like more of a natural language processing company because we convert lots of free-flowing text data into very specific structured insights. And so that's been sort of the area of most of my sort of the development side of my focus. So the uh, experimentation part of this has to do with some sort of A-B testing then, like uh, that recruit makes some, some suggestions, but there's some baseline uh, job ad that it compares itself against? So we do make suggestions, but not, not based on A-B testing. So part of what we've been able to harness a little bit is to understand how candidates search for data. So that was the many years of running a job search site is, oh, is we get I a see. sense of, of how that, that plays out. And actually, that's one of the very interesting things that I talked about in my Strata talk is, is how that sort of changed the way we think about some of the recruiting, you know, the conventional wisdom within recruiting. But the other part of it is we, we do run behavioral experiments with people. Um, so one of the things that I'm currently looking at now is does the number of qualifications um, impact the appeal of a job. So um, if we have, you know, like a lot more qualifications and, and what's the difference between a preferred qualification and a required qualification? Um, are they sort of from a candidate standpoint interpreted in the same way? So some of these are sort of more survey-based approaches, but they're sort of very classical social psychology or behavioral economics approaches to, you know, addressing these questions and trying to understand how that affects the appeal of a job. So one of the reasons I wanted to sit down with you was uh, because of your great talk at Strata Data New York last fall, which was called Moneyballing in Recruiting, a data-driven approach to overcoming bottlenecks and biases in hiring. And uh, your talk ha came up with three heuristics, and you kind of uh, did the deep dive in each of the, uh, those heuristics. So let's go through each of them individually. Uh, so the first one is uh, inflating job titles improves the applicant hiring pool. What does that mean? Yeah, so a lot of this, the stuff that came out in that talk sort of came from the fact that um, the founding sort of team members of Tap Recruit, sort of none of us were technical recruiters or recruiters. We had done recruiting in our various roles, but hadn't really, weren't as entrenched in terms of what are conventional wisdoms or intuitions within those fields. And so this sort of project was actually the first one I took on was to sort of be able to pull back on those questions and be like, do these, what passes as conventional wisdom? Does it really pass a muster? And so we sort of went into it with a blank slate. And so the first question, and this is something that happens a lot, is that does having a more inflated title mean that you have candidates that are better qualified for the role? So one of the 
and and this is something that happens a lot in I'm sure data science and machine learning is you know when you're trying to optimize for a single metric is that metric the right one and so the conventional wisdom in our field has always been that you want to optimize for the fact that the number of good candidates divide by the number of total candidates and it doesn't matter if you you know knock out your denominator if you know your proportions are right and one of the ways in which you get a good signal to noise ratio as i discussed the thought was that if you have a more senior role. So what we did was we looked at job description. We looked at jobs, and this is with um, data that we have from both partners and um, our clients and who are employers in the tech and other sort of field and, and other big fields, and found jobs that were reason. So they were usually two to four years out of, so two to four years worth of experience. So we restricted it to that, and that had very similar requirements, and looked at them that had the senior data scientist, you know, split them up into a senior data scientist, um, one that is titled senior data scientist, and one that is titled just data scientist. And if they have the exact same qualifications, what is the difference in terms of outcomes, in terms of the number of candidates, in terms of the number of qualified candidates? So in, in essence, the jobs are identical, except for the exactly. job title. Except for the job title. And so it is a, a very... It's a different way of doing a sort of A-B test um, as a postpartum kind of A-B test. And what we found was actually that key metric of the signal to noise doesn't actually improve. And in fact, what you found is that what that causes is those jobs are much less, jobs with the title senior data scientist are much less successful. So they frequently don't even end up in the hire. In fact, they're probably one of the worst in terms of the data scientist roles that I've looked at in the grand scheme of these projects um, in terms of the proportion that are successful. And we looked at and I sort of described how there's a bunch of other metrics that were that we saw were associated with a less successful job. So the number of applicants was lower for the senior data scientist role. The number of qualified applicants was lower. And one thing that was very interesting about that, this was a very fascinating story because because we went back and we were like, you know, why is it getting so, you know, the number of applicants was so few. And we went back and looked at our search data. And that's one of the things that we could sort of augment this with. We found that no one really searches for senior data scientist roles and certainly not at that level. But, you know, you know how search engines work. And generally people search for data scientists and then they use a bunch of filters to sort of restrict it to their experience level. And those jobs were still getting, were getting penalized. So having senior data scientists in the title was actually penalizing those jobs. So when we, you know, took that into account, we, we call it a visibility gap because they weren't getting surfaced on search engines and they were doing very poorly on search engines. When we took that into account, we still couldn't account for the fact that there was such a huge difference between the two, um, between the more junior role and the, the, well, the more junior sounding role and the senior data scientist role. And what we had interpreted was that, and we saw this from some of our behavioral experiments, people were feeling like that was too senior a role for them to apply to. And so what we would call the confidence gap was sort of kicking in at that point. And what that is, is it's a pretty well known phenomena where, you know, there are different groups of the population that are less confident. Um, and this has been best characterized in terms of gender. So it's the idea that most women only apply for jobs when they meet 100% of the qualifications versus, you know, most men will apply even with 60% of the qualifications. And so that was actually manifesting 
there might also be kind of a cultural thing there. I would imagine Asians are also a little more careful. Absolutely. I actually wanted to show um, I had been I had been doing some career counseling of a friend of mine who is an immigrant and she's here as a master's student. And I think I showed her like a senior, I sent her and I was like, you should apply for this job. It's a senior data. Uh, it's a, you know, it fits your skills perfectly. Like they, you know, you're, you're shoe in for this. And she was like, no, it says senior data analyst. Like I'm not senior. And I was like, but you meet all of the qualifications. And I really wanted to show a screenshot of that interaction because I had just told her about the talk that I was giving and showed her the data you know, a week before. And I was like, you're not internalizing this as a candidate. You have to, you know, like, I'm like, this is the data's here. It's very obvious that if you meet those qualifications, you should definitely apply. In fact, that's an arbitrage opportunity for you, right? Because those positions are getting less applicants and they're being stopped of applicants from a couple of different ways. So, you know, you should apply when you're actually qualified for it. But yes. So for this particular heuristic, in practical terms, if I am a hiring manager, mm -hmm. uh, if I want data scientists, I just say data scientists, but is is there a rationale for actually uh, having an ad that says senior data scientist when you really need someone with a lot of experience? Yes, of course. And so we restricted this analysis to things that we thought were overqualified. So these were two to four years out of, of experience. You know, like the, you absolutely, if you're looking for much more senior roles, then that would be one of the areas. The difficulty that comes from that, though, from a search perspective is, um, you know, roles like lead data scientist, senior data scientist, chief data scientist um, are all going to sort of compete at that high level um, and they won't do very well on search. So that's one of the open, the questions of what's the best title for a senior data science role when you're looking for someone a little bit more senior. But these were just for one of the sort of areas that we saw was that um, this sort of came out of the fact that, you know, suddenly senior data scientists became um, a title that became hugely popular in the last couple of years. So I sort of showed that it was getting so much year on year growth that, um, you know, there was a lot of title inflation going on, especially in junior roles. And so we wanted to address that. Um, we wanted to address this issue of the qualifications or the overqualifications of roles in a very straightforward, simple way. And, and that was how we decided to take that on. But absolutely, in more senior roles. You should definitely title it. But I think this little story of the visibility gap also highlights one other thing is that, you know, adding extraneous words to a job title um, does poorly on search. So, um, you know, I would caution people from writing Data Science New York, like having New York in the title, because you're actually going to cannibalize yourself in the in the context of the job search. Um, location resolution engines have gotten a lot better on these job search engines, so there's no need to sort of include that because it doesn't get you any benefit. And so it's very much being very clear about the job title from a search perspective um, to ensure that you get good visibility and a lot of, you know, candidates. So the second heuristic is has to do with the job description itself. And it says it's all about the money. So <laughs> yeah, so this is this is one of those stories that sort of um, comes out of this idea that there is a chasm between employers and candidates. And sometimes when an employer thinks that they're communicating to a candidate, the candidate interprets it very differently. And so the context of this sort of broader argument is this idea of that competitive salary has become something that has become a phrase that's used in lots of different 
descriptions of jobs, um, particularly in the benefits section. And it was something that started off actually a couple of years ago in just startups and particularly in tech startups. And I think that was a, it meant something very different. And now we've seen this huge growth. So there's like a lot of Fortune 500 companies and all sorts of big corporate brands using this. And what's interesting is that from a candidate perspective, what we've seen is that they interpret that as this company is cheap because they're trying to tell me, they're trying to prime me that they're giving me a good salary. And it's actually working in the opposite direction to what you would it's expect. It's better left than said. Exactly. If you don't have something nice to say, um, it's sometimes better to sort of think of it that way. But when we looked at, this was um, a very interesting sort of question because startups have changed the universe of the sort of the competitive nature of, of startups has changed how a lot of big companies are now recruiting as well. And um, this sort of led us to sort of look at perks and benefits packages, um, because one of the things that actually works for startups, you know, a lot of companies you don't know, you know, other than the big Fortune 500 companies and even within them, um, most people can't name most of the companies in the world, right? They're mostly B2B companies and they work in very specific, you know, niches. And so startups have changed the nature of that a lot because one of the ways that they achieve sort of not brand recognition, but they sort of infuse a lot of culture in their job descriptions, describing their environment. And, and one of the best ways they do that is through describing their perks and benefits packages. Now, when we did an analysis, we saw that most big companies, even most companies actually don't mention perks and benefits packages and hadn't for a long time. But startups had started doing that. And that started giving candidates some very interesting clues. And this has sort of changed the way in which other companies are now sort of mentioning their perks and benefits packages in the job description. And this sort of highlights one other sort of aspect of this that we think about a lot is that the candidate experience is not to go to your beautiful website and, and look at a company's amazing perks and benefits package that they only mention on their website and not in their job description. You know, candidates are searching on phones, they're using, you know, LinkedIn and Indeed, and their experience is being disambiguated from the brand that your company has spent all this time developing. And so what is increasingly important is to be able to make sure that, you know, regardless of the platform that you're being agnostic, you're, you're recruiting effectively, and you're competing with the startups that have great benefits packages, but so do you. And so um, what was interesting was we saw that a lot of companies big companies that would have 401k, who would have health insurance, would not mention, or family leave, which are all three probably the most important benefits for most job seekers, wouldn't mention them in the job descriptions. That had knock-on implications for um, the candidates and how they interpret those companies, even though it's implied that you know Coca-Cola is going to probably give you 401k and health insurance, but it changed the way that you think of that job and so, again, that's another thing is like, don't forget the things that really should be there. Even the boring stuff really matters for most candidates. And you'd think that it would only matter for, you know, older candidates, like who else would be thinking about 401k but the 50 plus crowd? But actually millennials and everyone in every age group thought, you know, were very concerned about those because I think that it's not only the 401k, it's what it implies in terms of the company is going to take care of you, is going to give you leave, it's going to like be a good workplace. By the way, uh, we have an upcoming survey coming out, and we found that uh, one of the key bottlenecks holding back uh, AI adoption is still uh, a skills gap and lack of skilled people. So being able to recruit well is, yeah. is a competitive advantage moving forward. So on this topic of 
the job description, uh, one thing that you talked about caught my attention, this notion of PTO versus unlimited vacation. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the other thing. So we talked about the content of those perks, but also the language of the perks matters. So, I mean, I guess you guys are all aware of the way in which, I guess, unlimited vacation sort of took over the world from tech land into everywhere else. Netflix, um, right? Netflix, right? Yeah. But everyone else too. Um, and so many companies have talked about like unlimited vacation. And what we found that was very interesting was candidates, even though PTO or um, flexible vacation should mean the same thing as unlimited vacation, candidates sort of discounted unlimited vacation as in, in a way that was sort of equivalent to almost zero, right? So they're like, I'm not going to get leave in those companies um, because it's a signaling factor. It's the way you talk about your culture and right, um, the right, fact right. that... If you, and, if you talk about a limited vacation, that means people are probably so busy, they never go on vacation. Exactly. And we know that that's definitely the case. I think there have been now studies that talk about how little vacation companies have unlimited vacation take. And one of the things I'm very curious about is how does that pan out with all the different ways that we talk about vacation, about family leave and things like that. So, and then the last heuristic you have which is interesting and also very important, diversity can be hacked. Yeah, so this is the one that I, I found really um, the most fun to talk about. And it's it's one of those areas that I think everyone is very concerned about DNI, and there have been so many initiatives that have been implemented and so much money put towards DNI. And there have been so many articles recently that sort of decry the fact that we haven't really seen huge changes, especially in tech companies, in terms of the diversity and representation of our workforces. So the heuristic that we decided to take a look at and the context in which we discussed this was what is the best way to have a diverse or representative hiring pool? And the context in which, and the one sort of the question I take on is there have been a couple of studies. Um, the Rooney Rule is probably the best characterized example of a hacking of diversity. The Rooney Rule is something that was developed in 2003, I think, by the NFL to deal with the issue that there are very few head coaches of NFL teams of minority backgrounds. And so they required that they each team, when they are coming up for making a head coach appointment, to interview at least one candidate of a non-white background. And this sort of resulted in quite a dramatic change in the NFL uh, in terms of representation um, and diversity of the head coaches. And it was so successful that they actually started requiring it earlier in, in, in other processes. So, um, you know, it was one of the methods that they've been thinking about. Um, they've been introducing actually in 2007, I think, for female coaches or female members of the NFL and the same in, in less senior coach levels. So, you know, offensive coordinators and things like that. They've been discussing that. So that was the hack that people have been using, especially in corporate. And it was so successful that basically big law, big tech, big everyone started adopting it almost 10 years later, I would say. Which I guess, Mary, I'm just to clarify in practical terms, that means uh, you can't move forward and hire someone unless you had some candidates of diverse background. Exactly. And so that was, it's, at least you've interviewed at least one of them. And so this was a process that was um, adopted by Google. It was adopted by Etsy. A lot of the big tech companies, as well as big law companies, had adopted this as a process to deal with this question, and especially in very senior roles. And 
But then I think a couple of years ago, what happened was that there was this Harvard Business Review study about how if you have only one person of a certain background in a finalist pool, so you have one female or one African-American in a finalist pool, there's almost no statistical chance that that person will be hired. And that sort of gels with a lot of social psychology studies that talk about how if you have, say, three candidates and one of them is of like one background and the other two are of another, you're more likely to pick the other two. Um, And that's just sort of human nature and, you know, a lot of biases that sort of suggest that. We found that in our studies, although it's not unlikely that you will hire that person if there's only one member, you know, one female, for example, in your finalist pool. So it's not zero, but it's not very high either. It's not representative of what they would go through. What we actually found was the best way to deal with representation at the end of the process is actually to deal with representation early in the process. And what I mean by that is having robust or a healthy candidate pool at the start of the process. Um, And what we found was that for data scientist roles, that was about having 100 data science candidates apply for your job. Um, we actually saw this bimodal distribution when we looked at those. Um, there were like there was a group that sort of had a median at forty, and then we had another group that had a median at a hundred. So, so do, do you try to make the top of the funnel, so the hundred, be diverse? Exactly. So even uh, your hundred will be diverse, right? So if you're starving your funnel, and which is what we think is happening in the group that has forty, um, either because you're like shutting down things really quickly, or you're not trying to get it out there, um, or that you've written your job description in a way that really turns off a lot of candidates, what that happens is that basically at every stage of the process, the number and the proportion of women goes down. We've measured this also for other sort of factors of diversity versus in the um, 100 case, so where we have a very representative candidate, a very healthy candidate funnel, rather, we see that the proportion of women and other sorts of markers of diversity tend to stay pretty standard. So that actually gives people the most chance. It's not that you will definitely get a female candidate of that process, but if you have 40 female data scientists out of your 100 enter, you have a 40% chance of hiring a woman at the end of that process. And we've seen that play out in lots of different roles, which I think is fascinating that, you know, there's a lot of companies that talk about how they can only get to 25% women. And we've seen that actually, you know, there is a pretty good pipeline if you can tap into it in ways that don't turn candidates off. So from a uh, purely mechanical and logistical perspective. So the instructions you give as a hiring manager to the HR people is, uh, don't show me the pool until you get to 100 people. Yeah. And, you know, if we're not getting to the point, if we can't, if we're struggling, um, usually, you know, and we're having real difficulty, let's take a look at that job description and see what's wrong with it and what could be turning candidates off. Because it could be that, you know, you're not syndicating that job description well. It's not getting out to, you know, search. It's not getting into search results of people. Or it could be that it's actually turning a lot of people off. Um, you could be asking for too many qualifications and that turns out of, turns off a lot of people as well. So there's a whole lot of different aspects of this that um, all sort of add up to um, the difference between 40 and 100. And sometimes it involves like, let's take a step back and take a look at what we're doing in this process that's not helping us and that's starving us of candidates. And what we've generally seen is if you're starved of candidates in one area, you're going to be starved of them. And like, you know, you will not have an odd job description that comes out of it. You know, companies either do very well in something in, in certain areas and they might do poorly in others, but um, they generally do poorly in multiple 
sort of like if your data science is a problem, you've probably got multiple problems with your data science. You don't just have one job description that's off. Um, it's that there's something that's not gelling with candidates in that process um, that, that drives um, issues. So try to get a broader pool as opposed yep. to kind of the uh, more literal application of the Rooney rule, which is uh, let's shut this down as soon as we get to X diverse candidates. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, like increasingly that's difficult to do because if you think of all of the different, I love the work about fairness and machine learning and, and biases that we have in our data sources, right? You can only sort of de-bias your data in one dimension effectively. It becomes a lot more complicated to do that in a lot of different dimensions. And that's one of the problems with metrics like Rooney rules and things like that. You know, we do need to make sure that we have women in in technical roles, but we also need to make sure that we have not just white women, that, you know, we have a broadly intersectional representative pools as much as possible. And so solving for one metric means that you lose out on other metrics. And we're seeing the manifestation of that right now. So by the way, so this talk that you gave at Strata Data New York, was that mostly based on U.S. job market? It was. It was actually based on primarily U.S. jobs. And um, a lot of these, so the senior data scientist versus data scientist test. So the first heuristic that I talked about was based in tier one and tier two cities in the US, primarily because they're sort of a little bit more developed in terms of data science as a concept and as a role than it is in other sorts of cities. So which actually uh, brings me to another reason I wanted to get you on this podcast. It's because you have a talk coming up at our AI conference in New York uh, talking a little bit more about uh, the technology and tools and techniques you folks use for doing the sort of work that we just uh, described. So let me let you write a job description on the fly here, Miriam. So, oh, okay. so if let's say you want to recruit people from our audience, so what are the things that you're looking for as a hiring manager for someone uh, joining your team to do the sort of work that we just uh, discussed? Well, so I would backtrack a little bit and just mention that sort of my team is the R&D team. And so we are somewhat production focused, but not entirely. We, we do a lot of prototyping. And actually, that's what my strata, my sorry, my AI talk is a little bit about is that we take sort of nascent or recently published technologies and take um, massive amounts of industrial data and put them through and kick the tires and see how we can use them either for external products or for internal tooling. And so because we have such a quick jump from what is a prototype to what is a product because we're a startup and we don't have the luxury of having a lot of teams that go in between us, like as in go, go between taking my Jupyter notebook and converting it into a production model. We basically have to do a lot of that process ourselves. So at the moment where um, I am generally, like as in generally getting um, data engineers and machine learning engineers, although and with a big emphasis on sort of software engineering background, because I think one of the things that came out of a recent talk that I remember hearing about was the idea that Jupyter Notebooks can allow you to, I think it was actually at the JupyterCon, right? The idea of scripting versus Jupyter Notebooks and, and making production level code and, and writing, you know, effective machine learning tools and data integrity tools in ways that are reproducible and, um, and efficient. 
And so I, we're primarily recruiting from um, a software engineering background for these sorts of roles. I really don't mind if someone has machine learning or data pipeline experience or not, because I think those are skills, you know, we hire for growth. So I sort of have a set of, you know, nice to haves, but I really don't mind. My most recent hire was actually just a software engineer who's just become really fascinated with machine learning. And so we're giving him the flexibility to grow into that. Um, but he had no machine learning background. He's just started doing a bunch of MOOCs and, and was like, this is something I want to do. And I want to be able to leverage my background into developing this new technology and new skill. So we hire, and I think it's very important to hire for growth. I think there's a, a really interesting talk that I remember hearing somewhere um, about whether you're a, you're a farmer or you're a hunter when it comes to hiring. Um, a farmer hires for for growth and for expansion. And, and those are the sort of employees that you tend to keep a lot longer versus a hunter who's looking for the unicorn and wants to grab the unicorn. And maybe there aren't that many unicorns, but you end up waiting a lot longer between hires because you're trying to find the perfect person for this role. Um, as a startup, we don't have the luxury of, of trying to hunt a unicorn. Sometimes we meet people yesterday. And so we tend to hire for growth. And software engineering is something that I think has a lot of discipline that I appreciate as someone who wasn't trained in it that have important roles in data engineering and in machine learning. And I think there was an Indeed engineering blog post about where people for different roles, for data scientist roles and for machine learning engineer roles come from. And a not insignificant proportion of them come from, you know, straight up software engineering because they have a lot of the skill sets that we need. And we're also, frankly, uh, more in kind of, we're definitely entering more of an implementation phase as far as mm -hmm. AI and machine learning because uh, there's been a lot of great research and so a lot of, tools are improving. And so I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for people with the right skill set, which, as you describe, is mostly in the implementation and software engineering, that they can take some of the off-the-shelf models and at least get started. Exactly. And the quicker you do that, the better it is. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. then make, make an impact, you know, going from zero, no machine learning, to a little bit of machine learning. There's already some impact right there. Exactly. And I think having pipelines that and, and processes that we think about logging frequently. Um, you know, I think a lot about a scientific debt, data scientific debt in the way that we think of technical debt and having people who are already inculcated into that idea um, and who are conscious of how that plays out or experienced in how that plays out is very helpful, especially when you're a startup that's sort of iterating really quickly. But, you know, like I, I think the next role in my team will be someone who has maybe a, a very deep statistical background and, and want to grow in some other field. And so I think hiring for that helps us really cross-pollinate in ways that we don't normally have um, expertise. So let me take advantage of the fact that you have uh, uh, a lot of experience looking through job postings because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I, think, my job. <laughs> I, I think a couple of years ago, uh, I co-wrote a post because we were trying to kind of uh, assemble some of the things we were hearing around the notion of machine learning engineer. Mm -hmm. So as someone who is closer to data engineer than a data scientist, but still somewhat specialized to warrant a job title. So is the job title machine learning engineer actually uh, playing out in industry? So are companies actually advertising? for machine learning engineers? I, I think they are. They definitely, there are people who are using that title in their own resumes and things like that. And I think it's, it's definitely growing. It's a very unique subset though. And I don't think it's the same as a data engineer, right? A data engineer 
and certainly what we've seen is data engineers tend to come from disproportionately from a, a software engineering background, um, at least in the ways that we've seen. And, and those are the skills that I think are very relevant in terms of creating pipelines. And, you know, there are some new APIs that you have to learn, but it's it's broadly within that. The machine learning engineer side of things, at least in the context that we've seen, has been a little bit more focused on the implementing of the models and yeah, productionizing, like productionizing. Yeah, productionizing and, and finding new models that might you might be interested in. And so those a lot of those tend to come from as in their background tends to be their previous background before they got the machine learning engineering role is like a PhD program with math or whatever else. But they still else. have... Uh, they, uh, the way I think of them is they still have stronger software engineering skills than a typical data scientist. Oh, yes, for sure. I think that's the, I mean, there is definitely, they're also coming from software engineering, but usually it's at a different level. So we're talking more about the algorithmic side of the software engineering than someone who is managing pipelines and things like that or setting up infrastructure, where I imagine a data engineer would be very effective in terms of being able to hook up this API to your pipeline and, and setting up an ETL process that is reproducible. But they're both in so much demand. It's fascinating. I went to a conference recently, the data engineering conference, and everyone was like, we don't need any more data scientists. Like the optimal proportion of data scientists is one to like three or five right, um, right. to software engineers or data engineers or machine learning engineers. But it's definitely on the engineering side where we need um, a lot more talent, I think. We're also, I think one of the things that uh, I'm predicting for the next uh, year and a half is we're going to see more automation tools for both data science and data mm -hmm. engineering, right? Because uh, more and more uh, companies are going to use machine learning and uh, machine learning is going to be used more widely within a single company. So it just necessitates more automation, not just for building the models and deploying them production, but also monitoring them while they're in production. Exactly. And I think I think those are, that's an area where I think a lot of data scientists, at least that I've spoken to, are sort of very conscious of is that they know that their ETL skills are a little weaker than they would like them to be. And so I think having drag and drop or nice GUIs that can enable you to do that effectively and, and also develop the data integrity monitors are going to be really critical in that process. That's certainly things that we think about a lot because I think that those are coming to the fore increasingly as you start making things a lot more automated is, you know, do we have the systems in place to ensure that, you know, our model isn't completely rubbish and what's feeding that model and other assumptions in all of those processes that we need to just check and make sure are always the case um, or are there new assumptions that come up from time to time. But definitely, I think those are very interesting areas that have a lot of growth potential that we've seen this huge growth in data scientists. And I think now companies are like, actually, we need more like these pods need to develop that you're working with quite a few other engineers up the back end. And certainly data engineering time seems to be like a one of those resources that people are fighting for a lot in companies, from what I've heard, which I think is really interesting. So um, so one of the ways is, you know, you can develop those skills or you can develop new tools that can um, approximate some of those, the basic things so that the data engineers can really do the complex transformations that you really need. In closing, so very briefly, we talked about the talk you gave at Strata Data, uh, the context for that talk. Is I think more for the job poster, which is uh, so. Here are some tips in order to improve the yield on your job post. So, in closing, maybe you can give one or two tips for the job searcher. <laughs> well, actually, at that same talk, 
is because it's a lot of the, these are things that people do badly. I, I have given this talk to job seekers and I was like, just turn the advice around, right? Look for the roles that have New York in their title because they're not going to get that many applicants. Like maybe search actively for data scientists, New York in your job search because those are roles that are not going to come up on search very well and they'll be very interesting. So I, I have turned that around. But I guess my suggestion would also sort of be to sort of think of company, like as in one of the things that we've seen is that companies tend to be quite, you know, apply, some companies get a whole lot of applicants and for very specific sets of roles. And then other companies get nothing. So we have this huge, like this very extreme distribution of things. And so my suggestion is to apply to companies that you don't know of, because there's a whole world of B2B companies that are always looking for data science talent that are sort of outside of the purview of what you would normally think, right? So, you know, big tech companies are always going to have thousands of applicants, but, you know, there's a lot of companies that are doing very interesting work outside of that. And the specific area that I would highlight is roles that don't have the name data scientist in them. And those are somewhat hard to find, but you know, they're things like business intelligence analysts um, or other types of analysts that essentially function as data scientists. So for example, for us, I'm in the HR space. We are excited about sort of democratizing opportunity and transformation. And there's huge ability to do that as a HR analyst in a company or as a financial analyst in a company. So there's a, they're looking for the unconventional titles that essentially require you to have data science skills, but with a domain expertise, I think probably the best thing you could do for your career. Because I personally basically spent the first six months of my time in this job learning how recruiting works and um, really sort of poking at it and, and developing a bit of domain expertise, not in the data that I'm going to be analyzing, but how does this process work and where are the fault points and things like that? And what are effective outcomes and what do people care about? And that domain expertise is what I tell everyone is the critical thing that's going to get you through your career, because all of this stuff, all of the things that we're doing, the you know, transformations and the model generation are going to become automated because there's so much hunger for these roles to become automated. But the human in the loop part of this process is going to be here to stay. The judgment side of this process is going to be here to stay. And having domain expertise allows you to develop really important judgment chops that I think, it, regardless of whether you stay in a data science role or in a quantitative role or not, is going to do you well for your career or for any transitions that you make. So this has been a great conversation. And if you want to meet Miriam in person, she will be talking at a bunch of O'Reilly conferences, including the one in her hometown, New York City, in April this year, the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference. So thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Ben. And thanks for having me. All right, just a reminder that Miriam is going to be part of a strong slate of speakers talking about the applications of AI machine learning in text and natural language processing at our coming AI conference in New York this April. You can follow Miriam on Twitter at mjahanshahi. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.